0: and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the
1: School of Marketing website for more deets. Already, for now, enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to yet another brilliant episode of the Places Will Go show. And today we've got, I'd say somebody I've known for quite a while, David James. I met David in 2014 and I have to confess another marketing academy fellowship alumni peer and so great to have you on the show david yeah
2: brilliant thanks so much for having us, Mark. spark lovely to see you and richie in person
1: yeah well we know that you've listened to a few of the shows so this is you're, you're the other side of the of the fence today um so as i said no known, known david for a few years D- david is chief marketing corporate affairs officer for hargreaves lansdowne has been for about three years um, but before that has had quite an illustrious marketing career, as you'd expect for people who have come on who come on the show. He was commercial and marketing director at Vodafone for three years, and before that, marketing director at BT for about five years. So lots of heavyweight senior experience. But actually, David started his career as a financial advisor. Uh, and when I did approach David about this, he very humbly said, would, would, would my story be interesting? enough, which is actually, in in all honesty, a few guests say, um, because we do like to have people who sort of, you know, fairly grounded, um, but nonetheless successful. My answer was unequivocally, yes, because actually, David, you've achieved some amazing things, but very much not in a flashy or braggy way, which is particularly endearing. Uh, And of course, we all know for you, it hasn't and for all our guests, it hasn't been perfect. You've had to work hard to create a lot of your own opportunities. And so we'll go all the way back to sort of what's made you who you are and how you've been successful. So I think we're in for a thriller. And so without further ado, I'll hand over to Richie to get us started.
0: Awesome. There we
1: go. I've used your words, David. Um, <laughs> but it's it just
0: absolutely brilliant to have you on the show this morning. Um I'm gonna get right in there, to be honest, at the end. And just gonna pick up on what Mark said. How on earth do you go from financial advisor to chief marketing officer? I mean, how does that
1: happen?
2: yeah that was, gosh that's a long that's a long story is it Richie so kind of um I guess I, I didn't start as a financial advisor I, I kind of um uh I was actually I was listening actually to Annette King and I think I'm probably I'm quite different friend Annette and I'm probably about a similar age and she was talking about how she entered from university into the graduate market in like a really um bad market and um the milk round wasn't very um, popular at that time um but I was ma- I managed to successfully get onto one of the very few graduate places that were available at the time with nat West um, I think it was 10,000 applicants for a 100 jobs or something um, feel very fortunate to have kind of got that. Uh, one of those one of those kind of early grad career jobs um, I was on the grad program for a, it was a two year program and I broke off it after about a year and a half because I thought it was a bit slow um, and I saw that I could get a car if I became a financial advisor so I did up with a. Yeah, this is this is like how not to do a career uh, right from the start, which is like base your career decisions on whether you get a dark aubergine Ford as your as your car. <laughs> I'd never had a brand new car before. and I was so excited. And um, everyone said, oh, you can't leave the comfort of the graduate program. You know, you've worked, you know, you're super lucky to be on there and you're going and doing a high risk job with kind of corporate targets and um, you're going to be measured and you know there's proper people and know what they're doing that you're up against but for me it felt like a a bit of a challenge so um, I I leaped into that one so um, that was the sort of springboard and and actually um, getting into marketing I did a marketing degree um, uh, so I've had a marketing a bit in my blood but um, I came to the end of my financial advisor career um, and I'd been pretty successful at it and hence um, Natwest gave me a few opportunities for interviews, and I, I went and did a, did three interviews in London with different um, leaders and and ended up liking this one in in marketing the best. and i and I ended up very quickly in the student and graduate marketing world. So I was out there doing cash incentives at universities and things like that to try and bring in the graduate the students and then nurture them through graduates into like full-time banking. So um, that was that was the sort of springboard into marketing. And then I guess, like there's a long wiggly path, as Mark describes, between um, there and, and here today. But that, that's the sort of exact summary of it. Wow.
1: So, so the um, I love that it was just too slow because a lot of often graduate schemes are pretty fast paced. And I think it talks to the fact that you do like a challenge um, yeah. and are prepared to take a bit of risk. So is that is that sort of quite natural to you to be able to jump into the risky situations?
2: Yeah, I think it's one of my top tips, particularly when you're younger and you you haven't got quite so much responsibility. Um, uh, what, what is there to lose? Um, so, uh, yeah, I kind of like, I, I think you've got to be brave in, in some of the early decisions you make in your career. Um, it gets, you know, the, th- the important lesson is it gets harder to make brave decisions the um, older and more senior you get. Um, you know, you get lots of um you get you get to some degree kind of um lulled into a lifestyle you've got and you've got families to support and you have incentive options and things like that which mature in many years time so it's kind of it's actually take you take your risks earlier I would say to springboard your career into the future um
1: what a a great piece of advice um it's so easy to get comfortable and have expectations and responsibilities. so um served, served you well, you have to say in the in the round. Sorry, Richie back to you.
0: Not good at, you know it's interesting. I, and, and I, I I wholeheartedly agree with that advice. But I also wonder, and i i I'm in a position where all of us are really, where we get to speak to friends in in sort of more senior positions. And I think there is certainly a sense of they wish either they had done or the thought that they, would like to be slightly more risk taking in today's context, and yet, like you said, the golden handcuffs exists, and and they've got a they've got other responsibilities to um, to think about as well. So I guess I would just ask, you know, is there and how is there a way that perhaps even later in your career can you still maintain that sense of enthusiasm for risk?
2: Yeah, I, I think kind of to be fair, I've probably taken some some nuts risks and some. Uh, and some well considered risks later in my career. I mean, the 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 latest one moving to Hargreaves Lansdown. wasn't the obvious move. I mean, I when I left financial services, I, I did seven years at um, All In All. The first time around, I said, I, you know, "I'm not going to go back." You know, I want to go do something a bit more sexy or whatever. And then ended up in some some pretty decent jobs like launching BT Sports, launching Voxy for for BT and Vodafone, um, working TV a little bit. You know. Um, uh even broadband is quite an interesting sector and and kind of like telco telco media and entertainment i think was a was a really exciting kind of time and i had some fantastic opportunities and some great roles there um but it's just actually going back into financial services was a bit of, is a bit of a risk you know to be honest from the perspective of a um i hadn't done it for a long time and the whole world's changed and it's incredibly regulated now and b it's not it's not quite as obviously sexy as running BT sport marketing, um, so you know to, to agree that was a risk, but I did it because I felt like I was adding bows to my string, you know, with with the sort of. Uh, an exco job in a FTSE 100 company. I'd not really got much board experience and I thought, you know, to further my career, I needed to kind of try that out and see if I was any good at it. Um, and, you know, obviously, um, working in a more regulated environment to see if I could could I, could I manage that. Um, uh, but I love Hargreaves Lansdowne. I love the story. You know, I've met Pete Hargreaves many times and, um, you know, fascinating company that really serves its clients brilliantly well. And it didn't feel like, going back into the financial services I'd left it felt like going into an entrepreneurial company that had been one of the big success stories of the of the UK you know started in Steve and um, Peter's garage almost you know and kind of built up to be a footsie 50 company when I joined um, I just have to ask very quickly so you said
0: uh, you determine whether you're any good at it are you any good at it did you figure that answer out? Oh, yeah,
2: I don't think I'm the right person to. I don't think I'm still here. So I don't think yeah, I'm necessarily go. the right person to answer that. But mind you, um, Mark, you know, uh, obviously Penny, your boss is on our board. So, you know, maybe she'd have a better perspective on that. Um, you know, I, I think all I can judge that by is I'm still here. Um, and, um, you know, I've got really good relationships with um, the non execs and um, my boss, Chris Hill, who's the CEO. And uh, so I do my, I do my best. I think I talk a little bit too much sometimes. And that's one of my that's one of my lessons is, you know, kind of succinct communications to the board. Because it, it's not like with the ceo where I've got like a very deep, you know, a lot I have long sessions, we understand each other very well. You know, when you're with the board, you're in there for a short periods of time, you've got to make an impact, you've got to have a clear story, you've got to answer their questions succinctly, and you've got to do a bit of um, stakeholder management before and after um, and, and those, as long as you get those kind of right you know it's it's um, it's not too tricky and um, we've got a great board very you know really really impressive board and um, they're quite challenging um, but you know it's really interesting to deal with them and you learn such a lot don't you i was thinking like it's developmental that's what i wanted you know i yeah. wanted to be stretched and you know and you've got people like mark's boss penny and um, you know all sorts of experts from the industry and our, our chair is Dean oppenheimer who's chair of many many large um, companies and you know they're super impressive people and you can't help but learn from them Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, going back to the beginning of the answer, I was gonna get all defensive about how sexy financial services is or isn't, but then I got over <laughs> myself. <laughs> I got over myself. But anyway, I mean you've landed you've landed in a plum place because there's not many FTSE 50 companies that even have anything like resembling a marketing exco-level role. So you're you're a pretty rare breed. Um and so I mean there's 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 things that come with that so you're there really genuinely running the business so how how do you sort of balance your time across you know you, the marketing stuff versus you know actually you're helping to define the future of the company
2: yeah it's really interesting it's, it's switched over the three and a half years i've been there because i initially way more time with marketing because you know when i when i arrived it, it was you know for, for such a brilliant company and such a brilliant place with lots of young people working there it would, the engagement wasn't brilliant. Um, it, I think for marketing, we were in the, we were the second lowest department in the company, um, and you know there, there were lots of problems to fix. We had poor diversity. I think it was thirty three percent female representation, um, and it just was not. You know, it wasn't a brilliant place to work. So I had to, uh, and it didn't. It, it didn't really plan ahead very much. It was it's part of the entrepreneurial background was that it kind of uh, lived in the moment, which is great, you know, living in the moment, everyone yeah, recommends, yeah. but it's not always best when you're trying to run a marketing department. So um, early days, putting in plans, finding out who the real talent were, getting them to the front of the of the business, you know, changing out where necessary to people who are really talented, building out that diversity mix we're now like over 50% female and we've got some brilliant brilliant kind of like female leaders now in um, and one more on the way very soon and so you know uh, over the time building up that backbone in the in the marketing department has allowed me to have more and more time to dedicate to strategy I I keep getting extra little bits added onto my job and uh, so board management in working with the boards uh, and doing Extra bits and bobs. Like we recently did a capital markets day, and I ran a bit of a strategy lead up to that. And that was something I'd never done before, would never have got the opportunity to do in some of the bigger companies, um, physically, you know, sort of the the BTs and the voter planes of this world. So, yeah, it, was, it is I like, but I think you just have to get great people around you, and then you've got time to do other stuff. I think that's the only way all these kind of I was listening again to a couple of the other podcasts last night people have been much more successful than me managing many big companies and so on and it's just about getting great people around you that gives you the time to do lots of stuff David
0: it, it, it's it's admirable the way that you talk about yourself in the sense of how humble you are I mean quite honestly there's there's not many people have come on in your position in in, in onto the show before as well so we're grateful to have you um I want to I want to And 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 also just to say, what a great what a great um, sort of transformation you've you've been on in the last couple of years across the department as well. Um, that's no easy feat by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I want to take you back a little bit because you did say that of the X number of thousand people um, who applied for that graduate program in NatWest, you were one of the lucky ones. And that's and that's brilliant. And I just wondered if you perhaps over the years have been able to put your finger on a little bit about maybe what is that magic source and. And i guess as part of that when you're thinking about future talent to come work for you in your department what are the kind of key things that maybe you'd be looking for
2: yeah it's really interesting there's sort of i was a little bit surprised i i got into that program so i'm not sure i've got the, the answer to that but you know there were quite a few notable people on that program so my wife Um, was one who also got into it, as was my next door neighbour, a bit name dropping, but my next door neighbour, Alison Rose, uh, who's now the Group CEO of um, NatWest. So she started in the same graduate intake as me. Um, So if there's anything that you need for being humbling is living next door to someone who um, has been enormously more successful than you. Um, So uh, she lived the dream that we will will kind of um, uh, pitched, which is you could be CEO one day if you join this program. Um, so uh, yeah, so Richard, just just repeat, the question, I was kind of um, got carried well, away with the graduate program story. <laughs> well, I tell you what, a, what a,
0: what a wonderful neighbour to have, quite frankly. Do you do you go up to her and ask her for tips or anything? But but no, not it's about... <laughs> mainly
2: it's mainly about kind of like her garden, blowing leaves over into my garden. But uh, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Now I was just I was just sort of wondering around, perhaps. What do you think?
0: Uh, um, kind of got you into that position maybe what are the characteristics or things that you brought to the table which which enabled you oh, yes, to get yes, on yes. Yeah. and then and then perhaps translating that into when you're recruiting now for young talent yeah. what are the kind of things you look for
2: so so sort of um I, I think um I I was I, I I think one of my big tips as always is be really good at one thing and like sort of really build that skill get rid of your fate. i went on this training um it's called the extraordinary leader and it was all about um building out your 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 main strength and getting rid of your fatal flaw and that's all you really need to do to become really successful and people are only famous for one thing so i've always been pretty innovative by nature um i'm, a, I'm an inventor on the side and i've got some quite successful in you know inventions um but kind of like I was always very creative, um, less creative than my siblings, by the way. Some of them are like artists and stuff like that. So, um, but kind of pretty creative at, at heart. And I think I probably brought a bit of a different story. To um, something like that, that milk round, where you know I was able to kind of combine that. I did a you know a, a marketing and maths degree basically, which is quite unusual for a creative guy, I suppose. Um, and consequently, I was able to sort of bring both sides of. And, and I hear a lot of people in marketing and particularly in these kind of jobs talk about the fact that you know they're quite good at balancing commercial and creativity. And so I think probably that was a little bit of my edge in getting onto that, I was also enormously competitive. I've got some very interesting, um, two competitive stories um, from my early life, um, but kind of, um, yeah, very, very competitive and driven and, and, and hopefully, um, although um, quietly spoken, sort of quite passionate about what I do. Um, and hopefully that came across, I guess, even back then but I was incredibly shy back then. So again, I'd sort of surprised myself because I, whenever it was like one of those round table kind of meetings, I, I never used to speak. I was always the last person and I, I'd always had got millions of brilliant points in my head and I couldn't get them out. Uh, and I was like, damn, I should have got those brilliant points out. Everyone else is like up there jumping around. Um, but I forced myself in that Milk Round interview to go to the board and like take the board because i would given been given that as a tip uh, for someone who's like you know a bit shy in terms of how do you create a presence, create a role, so I gave myself a role which was basically in the in, in, in end you end up like looking a bit like the leader if you're up at the board and um, so yeah that, that probably I was like a that. bit of a technique. Good,
1: good tip, now um we need to go a little bit deeper on the inventiveness and the competitiveness. Let's start with the inventiveness. So you've got some successful invention. I didn't know anything about this at all. So what? what what's your invention streak? Tell us about that. So, yeah, I've got,
2: I've got probably a hundred or so ideas in a in a in a folder somewhere, but some of them have seen the light of day. And the one that's been most successful is called the Jet Rest. It's a travel pillow, um, and it's one of the best-selling travel pillows in the world, actually. And um, it's been selling for 20 years now, I think, roughly. Um, but I licensed it to a company, and it it all kind of came about because I was working in America for NetWest. Um, and travelling the back and forth a lot. I was in economy, I couldn't really get, get to sleep. I tried every travel pillow in the market. They were all useless. So, um, and the U-shaped ones, I kind of they, they don't really work. They're not ergonomically well designed. So I learned a bit about ergonomics, um, studied it on the side. Um, and then I sort of created these various iterations of prototypes um, that started off being like a strap that strapped a pillow onto the seat like you know when you roll a pillow up and against Mm. the wall so so I I thought well if I strap something on and then I realized the strap went across the person's tv behind you and I was like oh that's not going to work so I created what I called the mobius strap which was like a figure of eight strap that went around the corners of the seat um, and that you still had to interact with the person behind you when I was trialing this and it was still a bit awkward so I, I redesigned it backwards basically and eventually ended up with this thing that was like uh, I cut pillows up and I got the tailor in the building I had in New York at the time to kind of like stitch it together and I put it in a pillowcase so people couldn't see what it was and tried different shapes and eventually I got to a shape where it sort of performed like uh, it was like a bit more like an L shape than a U shape and it performed like um, rolling up a, uh, a jumper and putting it against the wall against the wall both sides but you had like contouring in the back of your neck and it rolled up and velcroed and I did an inflatable one and eventually got it manufactured in China and then licensed it to um, uh, a company that's been selling. I remember one of the biggest moments in my whole life uh, from a career perspective was walking to Harrods and seeing a wall of these things from the cheap ones down the bottom, which in those days were 20 quid. And then they had the cashmere ones on the top layer, which were a hundred pounds. I think they're now 50 quid and like 8.95 or something um, online but kind of back in the day that was that was sort of you know it's one of those moments where you go you know the sort of this was nothing you know it wasn't you know it certainly wasn't it wasn't a job it didn't exist it was not even an idea uh, I took it all the way through and I patented it in the US and I wrote most of the patent myself and you know it, it was just one of those things where I I learned a little bit about being an entrepreneur and this has always been a a struggle for me because I've kind of had this duality of do I carry on my corporate career or do I go invent stuff and work with inventors um, because you know that's my my sort of um, I suppose passion you know so mm. I love I love design and creating stuff and uh, so on so that's that that's sort of part of the inventing story but there's many many more ideas that have yet to see the light of day.
1: Wow <laughs> well, what a brilliant story and you do face a genuine conflict because uh, it's not just pipe dream stuff. It's stuff that's commercially viable. So I, I, I'd be love to see inside that that folder of ideas. But um, Richie. No, I
0: mean, it, it is absolutely fascinating and, and absolutely probably never heard a story like that before in all the shows that we have done. And, and we're certainly approaching up to 100. So it's really, really fascinating. And I, and I want to dig in a little bit into that duality around um, entrepreneurship versus corporate life. Because yeah. as you say, you know, it, it probably is quite a dilemma in your mind, um, but what keeps you on
2: the corporate track? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's it, a good example, like the reason I, probably the main reason I went to Hargreaves Lansdowne was it because it felt like a more entrepreneurial company than say a Vodafone or a BT. Um, and it was really funny, in my, my early interviews um, with Peter Hargreaves. He's like, wherever you worked before, BT, Vodafone, oh my god, you know, um, you're not going to fit in here, um, but because the moment when I started talking about some of this entrepreneurial stuff I'd done on the side, he sort of warmed up to me a little bit, I think, um, but but that was it, it's, you know, it was an entrepreneur, and it still is, it's still got an entrepreneurial thread that runs through it, it's obviously got my, massive now, but it's still got that, like, client client's obsession at the heart of what it does, and it's also got this, you um, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial nature and trying to keep that as the company scales, I think is a really interesting challenge. Um Vodafone is a really entrepreneurial company one day, it was a very big corporate now. Um, and it's it hasn't, you know, hasn't kept any of that entrepreneurial edge. I don't know. I, it, it doesn't feel like it so much, whereas HL does still um, have a entrepreneurial edge and entrepreneurialism is valued and, and so on. Brilliant.
1: Um so the the other thing you mentioned was about competitiveness. So there's you can see that there's a sort of steely determination to get things done, but in a very sort of humble way. If we go all the way back, what are some of the events that shaped you into the person that you have become?
2: Yeah, I'll say I kind of um, I I was a council house kid, and it's really interesting. I, thought, I thought oh that's an interesting story. I was a council house kid, and I've done all right, and um, but then I've listened to a lot of the podcasts. It's quite a lot of the people have been on, and they. God, oh, I started in a working class background, um, I, you interviewed Simon uh, recently who we both know quite well Mark and um, I never heard that story about his dad and things like that and how you know um, he was there when the, they came to repossess stuff into his house as a kid and I'm going like actually my, my story is probably that interesting but I was, a, I was a council house kid and um, I uh, didn't really have much. As a kid, but I had lots of ambition and I was very competitive. And suddenly, really I was I was pretty decent at sport and things like that. So um, that drove my passion, and I kind of. Um, but I was overly competitive as a kid, um, and that manifested in my tennis career, which was um, I, I played a little bit of uh, you know sort of. Small county level tennis when I was a kid, and my parents used to come and watch me. And I was I, I was alright when I was winning, but when I was losing, my competitive edge turned dark. And I was with a website. I was at a competition and. I was up against this person for the first time. They rocked up and they were sponsored, and they had like all these rackets in a bag, and I had my sort of wooden tennis racket I'd bought myself, um, and they had these carbon fibre Prince tennis rackets. And anyway, this this chap demolished me basically, um, and I wasn't very happy about it. So I threw my one wooden tennis racket over the small crowd there was there into the car park, and my parents walked up, got up basically, and left me there, and I had to find my own way home. (laughs) so that was where competitive edge went a bit far um so I've learned over the years how to kind of like temper my um my competitive nature um to be something that's a bit more constructive (laughs) Um, but yeah so it's always been it's always been there I'm still I'm still pretty competitive um today but hopefully in a bit more of a managed style well
0: I think sometimes it's it's good to be you know a little to have that sort of oomph about about you. David, um, just be conscious your your microphone's roughing against your t-shirt, and oh, I think that's what's sorry. causing a bit of friction. That's fine. Um, so I want to I, I want to talk a little bit about that because it, particularly the, the the you created a great visualization in my mind when you talk about uh, wooden tennis racket versus the you know the all singing all dancing one of your competitors. And I mean, how how do people deal with that? Because often, you know, we are found in David versus Goliath situations. And how would you then, and, you know, particularly even in your entrepreneurial endeavors and inventions, it'd probably be a similar ilk, you know, where you talked about even the tailor in, the, in, in, your, in your building and cutting things up and then sewing it together. Um, how do you then, are you able to kind of take a position like that and still win? Do you have any thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, so obviously that day I didn't. So um, the uh, so I just I just uh, got the bus home. Um, but like since then, I, I think that my best like David Goliath story is not quite David Goliath because it was uh, it was BT Sport, uh, and it was obviously backed by BT, which is uh, you know when I ran it had the third largest marketing budget in the UK. However, kind of like when we went into sport, we were kind of like the Um, David against Sky's Goliath um, in sport and there've been some very well documented failures preceding it in terms of people taking on Sky including BT there was the first version of BT Sport that was launched when there was a regulation that enabled us to you know sort of retail Sky sports channels to our clients and Sky basically just unravels our proposition in public in the media and I I was in the team at the time but I wasn't the marketing director um but saw it all happening and then the, the, the second thing was ESPN had had like just I mean and ESPN's an amazing brand sports brand around the world you know and kind of they'd failed to um basically dent sky on on the UK sport market um and so it was like you know we felt like definitely we were up against uh, goliath when we were trying to launch bt sport but i learned so much about um what the sky tactics were um when we we kind of basically lost the first time around even though you know i was marketing director at the time we launched bt sport and was it was sort of had the hands on the wheels and so on but we uh, we knew they were going to come up really hard against us in the marketing and try and unravel our proposition so the big innovation we did was we started advertising BT Sport like um probably six weeks before the season started and I know that was a big strategic decision internally and I had to fight for that one um but because we did that we'd established the brand Uh, um because everyone why would you why would you do that like no one's buying sport at this time you know it's in in mid-season in between the seasons or whatever um but it was like well let's it's a chance to establish the brand in that gap um before sky got to unravel our proposition and that's exactly what happened you know we got wow. six or six weeks of clear air marketing we landed the proposition amongst the target audience we got 80 percent awareness um of the proposition in that really short period of time and that was that was a david and Goliath story and the, the sort of the rest is History. I mean, we overtook Sky in terms of overall subscribers, including pubs and clubs. You know, within I think a, a year or so, um, and uh, you yeah, know, so that was that was one of the that's my best example. But it felt like you know we did we were able to win by employing kind of learnings and understanding about what had gone before us um, and applying some intelligent sort of slightly sort of um, uh, counterintuitive tactics. I suppose to to get to get land it, and having a brilliant proposition and loads of brilliant people behind it.
1: Yeah, um, again that sort of yin yang of understanding where creativity and commerciality meet. Um, I've mentioned about you and I were on the marketing academy fellowship, and we've had a ton of people um, through Sherilyn's path. Um, I wanted to just pick at that a little bit in terms of the the role that relearning, reeducating, pivoting. Um, new insights has provided in your career Um, and you know you can talk a bit about that year but more generally how have you kept yourself fresh and learning?
2: Yeah that was really interesting I I, I mean I loved that time with the academy and like you know meeting all of you guys and girls on on that is you can't help but learn loads and loads about different industries different challenges one thing that was interesting though was kind of from a Myers-Briggs perspective quite a lot of the people in that group were very similar and increasingly you know it is, Peter Hogarth says this about Hogarth's landscape, you know, the, the business was marketing, you know, um, it was all about marketing. Um, and therefore there is, you know, it's just a journey and understanding that journey and, and understanding if you want to be on that or not. Um, and whether you love doing creative stuff and communications or whether you like running P&Ls. You know, dealing with different difficult stakeholders and so on. So I, I found that that sort of career evolution really fascinating, and I've also like you know, you learn what you like and don't like as you go as well, because like uh, you know, I don't think everything's for me.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, David, it's interestingly, it, I get a great sense from you that you learn a lot from other people, and you really do try and and understand people, um, and then sort of take the essence of them and try and build it into your own style and the own way that you go about um, your, your leadership approach. Um, and to that extent, I, I wondered what, what's your point of view on the role of mentors in both your career and, and potentially others as they're coming through?
2: I think it's yeah, that's really interesting, Richie, and I know you, uh, you do some brilliant work on that, um, UK leading work on that. Um, from my perspective, I've not had a, a huge amount of formal mentoring, but I've had some unbelievable on the job mentors. And, you know, so probably all the way through in each job I've had. So, uh, BT, that was John Petter and Gavin Patterson, who are my bosses there. Through Vodafone with Cindy Rose now at Microsoft, and um, also Glafkos Persianis. Um, uh, and to, to to date, I've already mentioned Chris Hill, CEO of Harveys Lansdowne, and Dan Oppenheimer, the chair of Harveys Lansdowne. Um, these people are unbelievable, and um, they've they've had much more successful careers than me. I've constantly le- like learning, have have learned and i am learning from them. And I, I found that sort of you know it's quite hard to kind of. Get that deep understanding of each other in a in a sort of um formal mentoring program but when you're on the job with people who are just amazing you kind of like um you can't help but learn and they give you tips and they give you challenges and they occasionally give you tough feedback um, and i think that's just that's just being Brilliant. And then I've, I've got sort of informal people who I respect and are sort of kind of friends with in the industry um, who also, you know, give us brilliant kind of guidance and like the fellowship folk like Mark, Simon uh, uh, and others who are on that programme, you know, uh, always inspirational and are able to bounce ideas off and hear about their stories and, and kind of like learn from them. So I think that sort of uh, I think formal mentoring has a role i've I've just not been i've not received a lot of it um but i've really got loads out of formal mentoring i've done quite a lot of um formal mentoring um, of other people and uh, i just really enjoy it i always think like i probably get twice as much out of it as the mentee um and that's as long as they get half as much as me it's probably been worthwhile because you get (laughs) such a lot out of it as a mentor um i've sort of developed a little bit of a approach if you like I don't know if it, it, it works but it's kind of my view of like how I understand what people want out of life and where they are in the thing and some of the tips I've, I've got like these six tips or whatever that I use uh, of things that have worked for me and they won't necessarily work for everybody but um yeah it's, it's just fascinating mentoring people Um there's so much talent out there uh, and I've, I've recently been working on this government social um, diversity task force Um and again it's like my favourite thing is finding hidden talent um, and the whole thing in financial services is really, really poor um, socio-economic diversity. Even the uh, even the BAME folk who are making it through in financial services come from privileged backgrounds by and large. So it's, it's finding that sort of lower socio-economic um, talent that's a bit hidden and unlikely to make it through. And particularly coming from that sort of council house background, I think I've got a bit of a, a vibe with those those people. Um, so that's that's what I think mentoring can really do and we've been doing some really interesting stuff um, at the grassroots level in Holger's Lansdowne you know with the things like the Black Interns programs that run and it is about kind of like you know all about finding those hidden, hidden talents and my favourite example is what Vodafone did, um, they got this program in Africa where they they've actually built a university they fund it from the revenues of one of um, the revenue lines out there um and they go around africa and they find these underprivileged kids who um have basically got nothing but have got a real spark and then they bring them into this university and they turn them into you know, amazing future leaders and i went out there for a trip and god that was inspiring and they all had about ambitions they had like proper ambitions they wanted to be the prime minister and they wanted to be brain surgeons and you know these are kids who you know didn't actually have you know, access to water in their childhood so it's, it's that's that's the sort of power of, of of like helping find talent and I think mentoring is a brilliant way of doing that.
1: What, what, a, what a brilliant answer with so much more depth than I think we've ever had before uh, amazing Um, the you've mentioned um much more successful than me, and you've used the word success quite a lot, and you've talked about competitiveness. I'm interested if you've distilled a definition of success. What is success to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, for me, um, uh,
2: making positive change happen is success. You know, kind of. So I was trying to take my own personal brand of that because I always like to put the inventing bit in there. Is inventing a better future for? me and my family you know that's my sort of personal goal um but it's all about that make positive change happen um that's that feels like success and if your team like do it rather than you doing it that's even better you know and if you've got a talented team where you know it was still the success still happens when you when you you're not there and when you've gone you know that that is real success teaching people to fish rather than being a fisherman and that 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 for me is like yeah, true success.
0: David, that's that's been that's fantastic. And I think what a lovely note to to end on. Um it's it's been a wonderful session and we've learned so much about you. It's been incredible. It really has. And um, you know, all the way from what, what people perhaps perceive of a FTSE fifty CMO of a financial services company is just such an antithesis of what it actually is. Um, of of what you want. Really, really cool. Um, And it's been really refreshing. Um, Both myself and Mark have had stints in financial services, and obviously Mark still does today. But um, I would certainly say that you're a very atypical um, CMO in that that environment. And and no no wonder you've had all the successes that you've had, which you're so humble about. So I just want to say a massive thank you from me. Um, I'll pass over to Mark for some of his key takeaways, but it's been an absolute pleasure and joy to have you on.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Richie, you capture it well, sort of atypical, but in a thoroughly good and decent way. Um, I'm left with two visual images, one of you sort of sleeping on flights and getting all fidgety and restless and then spawning the jet rest, which I'm now going to go and check out and probably buy. And then also like a John McEnroe-esque strop, <laughs> hurling a tennis racket, probably quite a long way. I mean, and, 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 you know, not to be too sort of parental about it. Was it was a small really crowd, Mark. You really could have hurt somebody. <laughs> but anyway, um, but no, I mean, what a, what a lovely, what a lovely session. Um, so many things in there. I mean, a, a lot about taking risks and being brave and that thought of being brave in the early part of your career because it gets harder. That's very relatable. Um, uh, but there's a, a real humility that runs through you. Am I any good at will I be any good at this? Will I be successful? People have been loads more successful than me. Well, I'm not so sure, because some of the people that you've mentioned have been very successful in a narrow way. And I think you've been much, much broader than that. You talked about your humble beginnings and how that spurred you on and that competitive streak that we talked about. Um, uh, but what a lovely, um, humbling experience that you have still been able to thrive and be yourself in a financial services FTSE 50 CMO role. Um, as I said before, it's a rare breed. Uh, and on the face of it you've you've nailed it and I'm really interested we've run out of time I'm really interested about where where does this go for you in the future and maybe that's a subsequent chat but for now thank you David it's been a brilliant interview thank you and for giving your time.
2: Uh, Thanks so much for having us great to uh, finally see you in person Richie and like I'm a a massive fan of the show as you know and you know as you say I counted like you are definitely close to a hundred of these and that's massively inspiring and um, there's so many great stories in there. And thanks so much for having me on the show. As I say, I don't know that I deserve to be on it, but kind of um, it's been great to spend some time with you.